Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Caroline O'Donoghue and I'm the lone guest at a monkey's funeral. Joining me is drag performer and someone who is always ready for their close-up, Joe Black. And now, Sadiel, I'm ready for my <laughs> Today we're doing Sunset Boulevard by the director Billy Wilder, starring Gloria Swanson and William Holden. And Joe, this was your pick and I want to know what made you pick it. I, do you know, I think it's got that that right balance of uh, it's it's. I mean, it's obviously a pastiche of you know the the Hollywood studio system and and all of that. And I love, I just love that whole era. But I, it's kind of the aftermath of it that I find more fascinating. And it's 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 camp, but it's still an epic. Do you know, what I mean, it it knows that it's yes. camp. It knows that it's ridiculous. But it's still like, it's a legit, it's hard to explain, but it's very much still a legitimately incredible film, but while being completely absurd. That's such a wonderful point, because if you think about like the cornerstones of camp cinema, and I'm thinking like Mommy Dearest or like John Waters stuff, there's kind of an accepted reality that we love these things, even though they're bad. But this has has just as huge and mad and absurd a central camp lady performance. And yet it's so exquisitely made and so thoughtfully made in every way. Yeah, it's it is it's a genuine. It's not even because a lot of these things, it, it, they have like an irony to them. You like you, you you kind of you go, oh, it's so good, but with a wink. Um, but this absolutely yeah. does not have a wink to it. It is, it it just revels in its own ability to be both ludicrous and a a wonderfully made classic film. I'd love to know when you first came across it, because when I look at your drag, it's it's one of the first things I think about is why I was so drawn to you the minute I saw you on TV. I was like, oh, there's Norma Desmond. <laughs> well, that's very much a conscious choice on my part. Um, but the uh, how I discovered it. So I, I, I used to do um, a show in uh, we used to fly to Rome with a, a performer called La Postra, who now lives in Berlin. And we, the thing about these hotels we'd be in in Rome is they would always have balconies. Um, and yeah. Postra, who, who was a big fan of, of kind of camp classic cinema, would go onto the balcony and wrap a, wrap a scarf around their head and put on sunglasses and lean over the balcony and go, you there, why are you so late? Um... And I and I, you know, I had no idea what they were what they were talking about. And they, I mean, they introduced me to so many wonderful things. They introduced me to um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, as well, um, and mm. and and Short Bus Fair. and yeah, you know, John Cameron Mitchell stuff and Sunset Boulevard, and uh, and I think Mummy Dearest was of my own uh, volition finding that. But I think I would have been maybe twenty, twenty one. Uh, at this point and they kept yeah, quoting wow. so so very much a formative time for your career yeah. I would think for like discovering who you were as oh a absolutely performer. yeah and it, it was it's one of those things that now I, I, I love it so much and it's become such a part of my the fibre of my inspiration that I forget there was ever a time that I didn't know what it was yeah it was just it was just from literally from seeing them quote it and then they sent me a list um and this is of the time of d- DVDs, um, so I made my way down to Ama- uh, to uh, to Amazon to uh, to HMV, um, and I they'd give me a big list of things, and I bought all of the um, all of the DVDs of all these things, and Sunset Boulevard was was one of them, 
And I just, I sort of desperately fell in love with it. And it just, I again, like I can't think of a time when I haven't known it now. And uh, I, that's when I, when I went into Drag Race, I wanted to, really wanted to reference it so that my hope was with these things, I love the idea of me having said something which makes other people look it up. Oh, no, it's, it's such a shame. They, what they actually, on my, my second uh, elimination on Drag Race, so the first time I kind of panicked and I got to the end of the runway and I went, ah, Mr. Charles, I'm ready for my close-up, and left. But the second time, I was just before it happened, I was like, do it, Joe, do it. And I left. And as I was about to leave the stage, I turned and I said, can't, I said, cut the cameras. I can't go on with a scene. I'm too happy. And you could see, Ru- <laughs> like when I said cut the cameras, Ru- RuPaul and Michelle Visage, they, they kind of went, uh, what are you doing? Like almost, you could see it in their faces. And then as soon as I said, I can't go on with a scene. I'm too happy. You could see them both <laughs> light up because they were like, oh, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Uh, and, and then I went into the, went into the full... I just want to say how happy I am to be back in the studio making another picture. Um, and I did, did the full speech. <laughs> and then I like walked back forward and I stared one of the cameras right into it. And I went, um, just ask the cameras and all of you wonderful people out there in the dark. And then I turned, I said, ah, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. Mr. Charles, I'm ready for my close up. Um, but they cut out the, I did the oh entire... Exit speech. <laughs> that is fabulous. Why did they cut it down to? Like, they I don't cut even it remember. straight back down to, and I've said it before and I'll say it again. Mr. Charles, I'm ready for my close up. And Oh, that's so disappointing. I know. Oh, God. I'm so sad that we missed that performance, but we're getting it right now. It really is an <laughs> honor and a pleasure to have this. It was, yeah, that was like when I knew that episode was coming up, I was like, God, I hope they've kept in the whole speech. But no, alas, not. It's so interesting that you bring all that up because, um, you know, this is very much an appreciation podcast because we, we both fucking love this movie. It's been one of my favorite movies since I was about 14. And I, re- I just remember, you know, I'm, I'm a novelist and the moment I saw that monkey funeral, I had this sort of bell ringing moment in my head going like, oh my God, you can, you can write about anything. Yeah. <laughs> you, can, you can really put anything up there and they'll make it. And it was such a, such an inspirational moment for me as, as a writer. Um, but then seeing you reference it on, on UK Drag Race and what was so kind of ironic about the whole thing is that, you know, I, I, I love that show and I love that franchise, but, um, I, I think even the biggest fans of it would say they are quite a youth obsessed mm-hmm. show. Like they, they don't, they often praise these kind of vintage references in the context of maybe Snatch Game. But when someone is, is sort of referencing an older character or plays an older character, they get frustrated with it very quickly. Yeah, no, I, 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 w- I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. It was so ironic that you were playing this Norma Desmond character and they were doing the same thing to you that they did to Norma Desmond, which was they sort of they kind of dismissed it as being kind of hokey or an old style. And I'm not saying they did that, but do you know what I mean? It felt like very fitting that someone playing Norma Desmond would receive that sort of treatment on the show. <laughs> very, very full circle moment. <laughs> it was funny because my, I mean, my snatch game uh, that I brought was Tallulah Bankhead. Oh, wow. Um, was my... So again, it was like that. I mean... Again, that could have that could have been something that they would have been like, "Oh my God, someone's finally done Tallulah Bankhead," or they could have done the, um, "No one's gonna know who Tallulah Bankhead is." Thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but I was like, I went in there and I was like, "Right, I'm, I'm getting out the classic. I'm getting out the classic references. I'm gonna do this, and if it means just a couple of people Google who they are and it makes them very happy, then I'm very happy." Oh, well, hopefully if you know a couple more people Google it and go watch it because of this podcast today, we'll be all the happier. Um, I'm going to do a quick plot summary for anybody who hasn't seen it. Um, okay, so when struggling screenwriter Joe Gillis parks his car in a mansion on Sunset Boulevard, he thinks it's abandoned. Little does he know that it's the home of Norma Desmond, one of the great stars of the silent era. When Joe offers to edit her screenplay, Salome, he thinks he's found a cushy deal, but soon finds that Norma is the one taking advantage of him. 
Joe becomes a kept man and finds himself increasingly smothered by Norma's attention. As her comeback falters, Norma loses her grip on reality and kills Joe in a jealous rage. And that's really not a spoiler because he open, the, the movie famously opens with Joe's death. He's, he's floating in a swimming pool. Yeah, and also that's a, a a very very parodied opening, isn't it? It's it's. Yeah. I think they. I, I think so. There's a book I've um, I've got. I've got the Audible um, one of it about the making of Sunset Boulevard. And I think originally it started in the morgue with the corpse sort yes. of sitting up and talking, and then they did sort of screen tests of it. And um, people found it too absurd, so they changed it and did the 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 um, the swimming pool. But the the thing was like it, the swimming pool thing has become such such a an iconic opening. You know, everything from like The Simpsons and Family Guy and American, all of those like cartoons that you know send up famous scenes in films no matter how obscure they've all done a detective or uh, noir episode that begins with someone in a pool i think there's one in family guy where someone's like frozen in a pool of jello which is quite fun and yeah. Uh, and yeah it's quite it's, it's what really what makes this movie a noir isn't it the fact that we know there's going to be a death from the opening like i think about um Double Indemnity, which is another Billy Wilder film from the 30s, which opens with um, the the guy who's been shot and he's kind of giving his confession while he slowly bleeds out. Is Double Indemnity... Double Indemnity is... Is it Penelope... Um, St- uh, is it Stenwick? Barbara Stanwyck, yeah. Ba- Barbara, what does... Oh, it's because I know a drag queen called Penelope Stenwick. Stanwyck. Um, yeah, which is basically... <laughs> Often so, confused. Yeah. Is it... That's the one with the... When she's in the supermarket and she's got the sunglasses on peering over the the shelf isn't it yes yes and the one where she has the um the ankle bracelet as well it's like the only film where you'll see an ankle bracelet be a plot point it's it's very erotic (laughs) but the thing about the um the pool scene and all that sort of stuff is that like you get you have that opening pool scene of like okay we know this guy is dead and then we kind of have 15 minutes of just like gumph of just kind of like us is kind of following around Joe Gillis and getting this whole notion that he's kind of this failed screenwriter and it takes us quite a while to get to Norma Desmond and whenever I rewatch this movie I kind of tend to mentally fast forward all the Joe Gillis opener do you Yeah no yeah every time but I think it's the kind of the 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 drawing out of it I think makes it more satisfying when she gets there because it it kind of feels like a different film where it's like not particularly absurd until and then the first time you see her is a monkey funeral yes so i mean it it it, it goes from like sort of you know two to a hundred uh in a you know 15 minutes just in in, within within maybe a two minute period it just amps up to something else entirely so explain to our listeners the the monkey funeral in all its glory it's just so perfect well well, so Joe is uh, escaping some debt collectors that would like to take his car. And he's driving up Sunset Boulevard and he pulls into what he believes to be a, an abandoned old a Spanish mansion is what they're called, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he believes it to be abandoned. And he's just walking around the grounds because, you know, he's out of the way of the, uh, the debt people. And then suddenly this shadowy figure appears on a balcony and says, You there! Why are you so late? And then a butler, you know, welcomes him into the house and he's trying to explain that, you know, he's just, you know, he's just pulled up here like he doesn't know what's going on. And he's sort of forced upstairs to which he he finds this leopard print turban, robe wearing round sunglasses woman um, with a, you know, a sheet over a a, 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 a figure who, who believes him to be uh, the undertaker. Uh, and it soon becomes clear that it is her beloved pet monkey um, that she is talking about the funeral arrangements of. And it just, it you think it's like, oh goodness, it's a child, you know, and then it's a monkey. It's a monkey. <laughs> 
it's simply a monkey and it's just the sort of the poetic kind of undertones of the whole thing is when the the high camp really starts because you know the fact that we know joe is dead and he's already being mistaken for the undertaker just shrouds his entire character in doom right there's just no hope and we're like not given any reason to hope for him but also the fact that he's going to be the new monkey you know Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also in the that book that I um, have the, the audio for, there's they were trying to like really build up the relationship between Norma and the monkey. <laughs> and, 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 and Billy, uh, not Billy Wilder. Uh, yeah, Billy Wilder. Um, sort of, uh, Gloria Swanson, who played Norma Desmond, was, I think she was quite, uh, quite a conservative woman. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least very kind of prudish. Yeah. And uh, he he was trying to explain the the relationship to the monkey with her, and she'd sort of go along with it. And then I think he said something to her like, you know, and you have fucked the monkey. And then she was she was furious with Billy Wilder for 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 suggesting that Norma Desmond had fucked the monkey. Um, it oh just my God. the the whole thing is just so ridiculous. And uh, do you know? I mean, do you know? Do you know the other options they had for playing Norma Desmond? Um, I know they went for Pola Negri. They kind of and went for a couple of people who uh, were stars of the silent screen, right? Yeah, I think they went, they went for Pola Negri. I think they went for Greta Garbo, of course. Yes. Um, and they also went for Mae West. But um, uh, the problem with Mae West is because they, they, you know, in, in all the ridiculousness of the film, I think Mae West is the wrong kind of ridiculous. Yes, yeah, um, I totally agree. It would have been a completely different movie if it was Mae West, you know? Uh, yeah, and- I mean, Mae West can only do Mae West. Uh, whereas Gloria Swanson, like, on reflection, you think no one else could have played that part the same. No one. And it, it, I think it's so crucial that it's Gloria Swanson as well, because the thing is, is that Greta Garbo had a successful career in sound and Mae West, like her cadence and her, her the way her voice sounds is very well known to the to people still. Right. Um, but the thing about Gloria Swanson is that they needed somebody who was legitimately huge, but who most people did not have a context for what she actually sounded like. And it completely underlines the entire mm-hmm. sort of tragedy of the downfall of silent film, which is this this whole thing of and there's really very few um case studies of entertainment like this where something that dominated and had an entire industry and had no sort of historical precedent before or since that was the entire way of making movies and had its own style of acting its own style of production everything the fact that that could just vanish overnight never to be revisited again and to only really be referred to as like a primitive form of cinema that's the whole sort of tragedy of it, right? And and that's why you need someone like Gloria Swanson, who's there, and her acting style is still informed by that silent film acting, right? It's these long, big gestures and these big eyes and every movement, even when she's behaving quite casually or when she's having a moment to herself, she's still acting like she's in a silent film. And that's what makes, it's almost like there's, there's two movies at work here. It's the silent movie that is her life still going on and the contemporary 1950 movie. You know, it's what makes it so striking when she appears on screen. Yeah, I mean, you like you were saying, like every single movement from her, it's kind of silent movie acting. It's it's not even quite stage acting, is it? It's 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 its own. It's it's its own thing. Like it's yeah. you know the the, the you know because I think sometimes you can kind of there's a, a dis disjoint between people that do film and people that do stage, and silent movie is 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 neither of those things. I mean, it's maybe closer to stage acting because everything's got to be so big, but it's got to be so big because there are no words, not just to fill a space. I'd love to, I mean, not that anyone will ever get the chance to to really hammer and home and and, and, and learn silent movie acting because you have no need for it anymore. You know, the, the, you know, the time it would take to do it, how you, you can't, that doesn't translate to the stage and it doesn't translate to sound film, but it's just... There's a real charm and a beauty to just 
the faces, the movements, the reactions, the eyes, the hands. Um, totally. And, it's all, and also, and you say that you'd love to learn it, but also the tragedy is there's no one left to teach you. I mean, you I know? Think Betty White's still around, isn't she? <laughs> did she do silent? <laughs> no, I don't think she did. I think she, she was very early television. What? Like... I, I think that's why it's so it's so seductive. And you said at the beginning of this how like you love the silent era, but the kind of the mythology and the whole parable around silent film and the whole thing of it being just retired in a matter of years and the, the notion that in the nineteen fifties these people were still hanging around. Like they, they, they were like these haunted these ghostly figures that just lived in Hollywood and that Billy Wilder would see and and how Often, and the thing about silent film as well, I, I kind of I read quite a lot about it, and I think there's a misnomer that people who the silent film stars that they couldn't hack talking, like that's kind of the mythology this film puts forward. That oh, they just couldn't talk; they all sounded weird, and no one liked the way they spoke. But actually, what was really happening was as as people were as talking pictures began it was also all these studios were beginning to unionize and formalize and become extremely corporate and cinema stopped becoming this intrepid dangerous sort of risky creative DIY movement where people just kind of made it up as they went along it became very formal and that's why you get people like Buster Keaton who always had his own way of making his own stuff and he had his own crew like he was basically stripped for parts by the studio system and then he he ended up not owning any of the his own work and he died sort of broke and now you see him in this movie and he's got this sort of a ravaged face and his only line is the word pass you know yeah get having me. Ha- having the actual silent movie stars of your in that scene as well because it's it, it, it's something that you can also kind of miss uh yeah like like the first time i watched it i didn't clock it. i don't i can't even remember if they were introduced because they what uh, they call them the um the waxworks the waxworks yeah i don't think they're named are they they just call them the waxworks yeah yeah just yeah that's it exactly so it's when you look back and you're like, that's Buster Keegan. Do you yeah. know what I mean? it's, it, it's Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's so... It's, I find it endlessly fascinating. And you, what you were saying about the kind of DIY, kind of dangerous approach to silent movie is, is that a lot of the, the aesthetics have a real dark vibe you mean like there's very few silent movies that i think i look at and i think everyone looks clean and gorgeous everyone just looks a little bit grubby a little bit off do you know what i mean there's just there's the way there's a way of makeup there's a way of costume that it just the whole thing just i don't know it's very very magical even the sort of old um Crawford ones. I forget how vampy Crawf- uh, John Crawford is. Still, it's like that thing with, with silent movies that everything is so dark. Like Joan Crawford looks like a, you know, she's a vamp. But that it's it's just a. I guess it's a, a silent movie thing, isn't it? That just everything would just had to be harsher. It had to be darker. It had to be more intense. Yeah, completely. And I think what a lot of people don't know as well is that pre the Hayes Code, which was a set of morals and standards that were implemented in American cinema in 1935, there was really no rules about what you could de- could depict on camera. So like mm-hmm. it could it could get incredibly gritty pre that era. And so there's a lot of like, you know, quite there's like a lot of flesh. There's a lot of like seduction. There's a lot of violence. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. so much more than people ever really give it credit for, and it's really worth investigating if you have the time to. And I think they had they had a pro- um, some problems with the uh, with the Hayes Code in the making of Sunset Boulevard because uh, of of course in you know cinema it was perfectly fine for an older man to have a younger woman, but they had an older woman with a younger man, which is of course immoral, you know. <laughs> And so, yeah, we have this thing to go back to the where we are in the movie. We have the monkey funeral and and sort of 
Joe, they, they have this big misunderstanding where she's like, get out, get out of here. And Joe sort of goes, okay, I'm off. See you later. And then he goes, hang on. Don't I know you? Didn't you used to be in pictures? Um, and then they establish that she is Norma Desmond, the former star. And she tells her, and she says the iconic line, I am big. It's the pictures that got small when he accuses her of uh, having once been big. Uh, it's it's that that whole that whole speech is just something else. They took the idols and smashed them. The Gilberts, the Fairbanks, the Valentinos, and who do we have now? Some nobody. Then Joe says his line. Um, ta. Oh no, uh, Ryder, eh? Right words, words, more words. Oh God, I've got it all messed up. But where you get the but? And it's the what's the line? And she says like um. And Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongues. Yes, that's the most. That when I was watching it back this morning, I was like, "What a fucking creepy line!" <laughs> what? But like, that's dark, isn't it? And Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongues. It's so grotesque. It really. It's so mad. It's like. It's so weird. Like the. the because you think like, oh, here's just a lady who sort of lives in a delusion. and and But it's so much more layered than that. It's so gothic and strange. And every part of it is just loaded with like mayhem and the macabre. Yeah. It's spiteful. It's venomous. It's like there's a, like a vendetta. It's not, she's not just going, oh, it's nothing. You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> there's pure vitriol. About talking, talking. It's, yeah, and, and we just from that moment, we know this movie belongs to her. And she moves him in. She's basically, the, he reveals that he's a screenwriter. And uh, and it's very interesting um, the way he does it, because he could just leave. He could just be like, okay, um, night, have a nice life, lady. Um, but he's like, there's that thing that happens when you're in the creative arts and somebody else is also, and you kind of want them to know, oh, you know, we're kind of peers, you and I. And that's kind mm-hmm. of his undoing, because at that moment, she's like, oh, I'm I'm writing a screenplay for my comeback. You're a writer. You're, you're going to help me uh, write it. And so she moves him into this little guest, leaking guest cottage just above the tennis courts, and he's escorted there by her butler, Max. And what can you tell us about Max? A very kind of Lurch-esque figure. Yes, very Lurch. Very Lurch. He's, he's very ominous. And also what's more ominous is that the guest room is already set up. Oh, yeah. The room is already set up. And then when he's like, oh, how did you know I was staying? He was just... Ba- basically, it's a case of like, he knows all. You know what I mean? This kind of shadowy, always watching figure max because the guy that played him was a he was a director right yeah it was eric von stroheim who yeah. um so it, it's he, the weimar kind of era people yeah exactly and there's a famous thing where him and gloria swanson who plays norma desmond worked together uh on a movie they never finished called queen kelly that apparently he was such an artiste he could just never he he spent blew the budget on the first third and they had to shut down production but um, frames of it still survive and they end up watching it in the film itself, in Sunset Boulevard. Joe and Norma watch it together, which is such a fun just kind of art and life and life and art moment. It's like there really is no greater example of a movie with art imitates life more than Sunset Boulevard. Oh, it's I mean, even the, the you know, the, the pictures she has of Norma Desmond are all the old glorious ones and headshots. Yeah, and it's it's like you have to you have to think like because Gloria Swanson herself said you know Billy Wilder didn't really give her any direction he was just like it's you just just do you or do do you know, do the your work yourself dwell on your own life and she I think she found it quite difficult having to deal with her own history and she talks about filming that scene with Buster Keaton and the other silent stars because she at least has this sort of whole narrative and whole character written for her but those guys were just wheeled in to be referred to by the narrative as washed up which must have been like psychologically just very fucking difficult oh yeah but like and then I think in the in in this book that I have about Sunset is the the scene where I mean we're jumping forward a little bit but just talking about kind of her relationship with other uh, silent stars is I think she went to go visit Charlie Chaplin 
Um, oh, really? Doing something while... Because I don't think his, his career wasn't doing well by the 50s, right? He was... Yeah, he'd been, like, excommunicated by the American government, hadn't he? Yeah, but I think he was, he was doing... I think it was Charlie Chaplin that she went to go visit him working in during the whole kind of Sunset Boulevard process... Um, I can't, maybe it wasn't during, but it's it's very much the, the kind of latest scene when she visits the studio. But in terms of like these people and this whole film is what it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's criticizing the Hollywood system. Yeah. But um, the, the, this, this whole thing about all silent things being washed up and she's just, that's still kind of her life. That's her group. Those are her, genuinely her friends, her colleagues, you know, she, <laughs> not, you know, Gloria Swanson hadn't particularly moved on by this point. You know, yeah, she would have had the same group, same group of, of, of friends. It's it's brutal, isn't it? Like it, it's weird because I feel like even though she is this outsized camp crazy character, I feel like the movie is on her side for the most part. The movie sympathizes with what she's been through, but still, to make her and those actors play that out, there is a kind of a streak of cruelty. It's, there's kind of a streak of mockery as well. It's kind of it's interesting how it balances. Because yeah, I think I think Hollywood was quite angry in general about this film because I think it was the first time that anyone had like a a Hollywood film had criticised Hollywood because you know yeah. it's it's sold as the dream the best you know the the pinnacle and this was the first film that went it chews you up and spits you out yeah, and like um, it, people were genuinely very mad about it right like yeah so uh, Louis Mayer. I think came to one of the screenings and he told Billy Wilder that he was uh, basically a disgrace for doing this. Um, and then uh, Billy Wilder told him to fuck off. <laughs> nice. Like publicly, publicly in front of all of his friends went, I think, no, he said, go fuck yourself. Yeah, I, I think I remember he, reading this story. It's like Louis B. Mayer said, like, you basically shat your own bed by criticising the system that's nurtured you. And he's got like, well... Fuck off. Which yeah. I respect. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So tell me what you think about with the whole... Joe Gillis, Norma Desmond, kind of pseudo-romance possession story. Tell me about how all that gets started. It's, well, you know, he's just sort of writing and then she starts, you know, looking after him, doesn't she? She starts making sure that he has everything he needs. She's The elements of control start with the, with the script and then just slowly, slowly, slowly it starts going on to him it all sort of galvanizes this kind of creeping dread and like, you know, the, the, his clothes get nicer and Joe, as we know, is broke and she buys him things and brings him to the tailors and all that. And I, I, I don't think they've um, had sex yet or had any kind of romantic leanings, but then it all kind of comes to this moment where she has a Christmas party. Oh, it's, no, it's New Year's Eve. Oh, it's New Year's Eve. Go on. It's New Year's Eve, yes, and she, you know, she talks to me, you know, she's got a band. And as far as Joe is concerned, there will be many, many people there. And then he comes down in his tux that she has provided for him. And it's just them two. Uh, She's had the, you know, she's had the floors, she's just had the floors changed, hasn't she? She says something like, 
Valentino. Uh, was there was some reference about Valentino and Dan? Valentino danced on these floors, or something like that. Um, but as the band are playing, and it's just them two with Max, and it's all and very, band. very strange. And the band just playing, and it's all very, very strange. And you know, they have their 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 argument, and off he goes to another New Year's Eve party. Where, uh, you know, he's flirting with a uh, young lady. Um, and he, uh, you know, and then gets the call saying that she's done something very, very silly. Um, and then yes. he, And then he rushes back. And I think that's probably one of the, one of the darkest moments in the film, really. Because I can never, it isn't quite. Uh, explained whether she actually did. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like has oh, she yeah. actually? You, it's not like explicitly shown whether she's faking it or not. So I always think about that whether she's actually done it. And it's the you can see oh, the yeah. the the manipulation in her face when she knows that it's worked. And this thing of like, um, we have this kind of foreshadowing because there's no locks on the doors and, and Max says, you know, Madame is prone to fits of melancholy. And um, we're sort of, we're, you know, given that to believe that she's had sort of suicide attempts before or self-harm or whatever. And then you're right, Joe comes back from this New Year's Eve party that his um, like young, vibrant sort of up upstart everyone's kind of in the film business and like the sort of juxtaposition of that party which is so wild and seems really fun um with the part the quote-unquote party at norma's house is so you know it's such a clash and then when he gets back there and we just see her on her bed with the bandages on her arms and the doctor leaving but you're right there's like because um max is his whole M.O. in life is to help her create these fantasies for herself. There's really no guarantee as to whether it actually happened. Mm -hmm. But also that one of the the, the lovely little touches about that scene is that the band is still playing. Yeah. Yeah. And they play old old Lang Syne starts. uh, Yes. During that scene. And he just takes her on the bed and, and kisses her. Yep, and then have you have you ever seen it live, the the stage show? I have, I have actually seen the stage show with Glenn Close in the in the title role. Me too. I saw that one, and it's uh, it's there's that moment is a real kind of like almost like they embrace, and you could kind of, you can you get this feeling of her looking at the audience like my plan worked. It really is that um, sort of spider catching something in in the web, just wrapping it in silk, really, and just to devour and suck the blood of. It's a real mm. vampire movie. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. She's a vampire. That you know, I'd never thought about it like that. But you're right. No, that is a vampire. And it's interesting because, like, the more the longer Joe spends in her lair in her like old gothic mansion with the old movies and the whistling organ and the big fire the more he spends in that world the 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 less youthful he becomes and every time he bumps into his old friends throughout the movie he seems more and more removed from them it's almost like a generation has grown between them just by him hanging out with Norma Mm-hmm. Or for the vamp thing is that she's maybe sucking his life force. She's consuming him. And and then it's like, but it's this sort of thing because he then starts up this thing with Betty, who's this 22-year-old aspiring screenwriter. And then she's kind of giving him the get up and go to get on with his career. So it's actually the sort of, He's his own kind of vampire. Like, Norma is a mental character, but Joe is not innocent, you know? Oh, yeah. And he... Uh, but it, it's it's kind of that... I mean, it's it's strange watching this film because obviously he's one of the leads. Um, but do you find that you just do not care about him? Not at all, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, you do. Yeah, he is... For me, he's purely there to allow Norma Desmond to exist. Yes. Like, I'm never once looking at him if he's in a scene with her. I'm like, in my head, 
I could just see her. I can just see her. I can see the outfits. I can see. Actually, there was an interesting... That was a thing about one of the outfits. So, do you know when she um, goes to the studio and she has the um, peacock feather? Yes. In her hat. And I can't remember the exact reason. So, I don't want to misquote, but I will sort of vaguely from, like, my recollection. The peacock was a reference to a costume that was in a Cecil B. DeMille film that Norma, I mean, that Gloria Swanson wore. And th- th- I think the peacock was, was a a thing of contention. There was a problem with this peacock costume, which is why they put the peacock feather in her hair. Oh. With, I think it was... It was it was a problem with with um, Edith Head, who 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 did all the costumes for Sunset. She, it was it was her being spiteful to Cecil B. DeMille in the design because she'd had an issue with him, something to do with like a peacock cape or or some big costume that there there'd been some argument and disagreement with with Cecil B. DeMille and Edith Head, and yeah, that's why she put the peacock feather in her hat. For oh, the so great. for the Cecil B. DeMille scene, yeah, I can't, I can't remember. It was definitely, it was a spite reason. <laughs> Everything in this film happened for a spite reason. Oh yeah, and then also having Edith Head do the costumes was just, uh, you know, who, who else could have done it? You know, she was she was genuinely dressing these people. Like such a living legend. Like it's it's so amazing to me now when you watch any kind of movie pre nineteen sixty five, and it's always costumes by Mrs. Edith Head. Always, you know, it, like it's incredible how much of a how much power that woman had, and you can really see it. Like the the way that her clothes are just so impeccably glamorous, while also being a little bit out of date, is just so iconic. And she, the reason she wore the, um, for those of, uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar with Edith Head, is uh, Edna Mode in The Incredibles is based on her. Of course, yeah. Um, and obviously Edna Mode wears the, the big glasses. So Edith Head always wore dark glasses and people thought it was like a, a fashion statement. Um, but it became her kind of look because she had to wear, she wore these blue, dark blue tinted glasses because when she was designing, she could see how the colours would translate into black and white. Oh, wow. That's so So, cool. So that's why she wore the glasses. It's because everything would look different. Yep, as soon as it was in black and white, things just, it, it, they, they don't look the same. I mean, some sort of silent movie makeup, if you had seen it in colour, it would have looked insane. I mean, people having like green stripes on their noses and, you know, literally pure black lips because they look like or dark blue lips because it reads as red on, on, on black and white film. And it, it's just people's faces were like all bizarre colours because that's just how it translated to camera. It's so fabulous, isn't it? And to, to have to have something like have that black and white palette and yet for things to still look so lush and glamorous and to have that implication of colour and movement is so it's so well done. Like it's the reason why Edith Head is Edith Head, you know? I mean that's the thing is 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 you know, you can have an amazing could you imagine a you know, a contemporary designer designing for black and white, you know, no matter how good someone is, it's 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 his own skill. Because, you know, uh, some colours all look the same and then suddenly you put that in front of the camera and what was once a plush, lovely thing may not translate the same. So it was, not only was she designing these amazing looks, but it had to be not, it had to be different from the actual eye to what it looked like on camera. Like it it was an entirely different translation of the whole piece. So to have that element and still manage to keep, like you said, that that kind of plushness, that opulence. um, Yeah, incredible. I want to talk more about that studio visit because for me, it's like one of the real centerpieces of the film. Mm-hmm. Because, because what, so we, ha- we have this, I, I'm not sure exactly how much time the movie takes place over. I'm going to say like six months. But we have this mm-hmm. um, whole montage where Joe kind of accepts that he's now Norma Desmond's plaything and he, um, 
you know, he, he doesn't seem unhappy. He goes, he uses the pool. He's having a great life. He's, you know, in the lap of luxury. And he kind of accepts that this movie she's always banging on about isn't going to happen. And then she starts getting calls from the Paramount lot saying that they want her to come in and they want to talk to her and all this. And if you're watching this movie for the first time, you're so, you're weirdly delighted because you're like, oh, oh, maybe, maybe um, there is something to her script. Maybe there is something to her comeback. And then she gets herself all dolled up. She goes down in her ancient old car with Max and Joe and they go down to the set and she she sees Cecil B. DeMille who she assumes wants to talk to her and they were these old peers and there's this moment where Cecil B. DeMille, his first AD, comes up to him and says, you know, oh, Norma Desmond's on the set. She must be a million years old. And then Cecil sort of looks at him and says, well, I hate to think where that puts me. And it's really the most direct way the movie confronts sort of misogyny in Hollywood and this whole thing of like these men stay the same and only the women change you know like these Mm -hmm. stars they're built and they're broken and almost everybody who used to work with Norma Desmond still has a job but her this person who was the focal point of this global campaign for fame and stardom and cinema she's the only thing that was actually completely replaceable yeah, it, it, it yeah, it, you're right. It's it's all the all the men working there, you know, Hawkeye. Hawkeye. Um, it's hello, Hawkeye. <laughs> Hawkeye. <laughs> hello. <laughs> Let's put a light on you, Miss Desmond. Um, it's it's yeah, it's but then of course for those uh, like you said for those of people watching it for the first time, there is that glimmer of hope. But the reality is even sadder than you can possibly imagine. (laughs) No, they do not want her. They want her car because it's so dated. It's so old. They need it for a period piece. Yeah, they just want to rent out this relic and the relic isn't even her. Yep. And it's it's so tragic. (laughs) And she's there looking like an absolute bird of paradise. You know, and they kind of usher her away and go, oh, look after yourself. I've got to do my job now. And then they basically, as they leave, go, how sad. Oh. Don't know. It really is just so heartbreaking. It really, it's like, it's funny because it's this completely vain and self-obsessed character who's been living in this delusion for years and who the men in her life are helping her to maintain the delusion. But you, as the audience member, also at this point want to help her maintain the delusion. You hate, you don't want her to feel bad. No, and she's, I mean, she's technically the villain, but she's the villain that you're, you're, you're cheering on. Yeah, and I, I, I just, and it's, I think anybody who's, you know, had a full career in in the arts or in anything creative or whatever there you have to be everyone in this film eventually like everyone starts off as betty just wanting to write their thing and get their leg up and then i feel like i'm now joe just like mildly cynical and and <laughs> doubts anything that will ever really happen and then eventually you end up as norma like it's i think it's that's why she's so sympathetic is that everybody who's had their dreams come true also has to put up with the idea of being someone totally faded and forgotten. I mean, I've done reality TV and I've <laughs> fully, I fully prepared myself for that Norma Desmond life. I'll be walking into the gay bars with, you know, my turban and my sunglasses on and someone will go, oh, it's Joe Black. And I'll go, hi guy. Hello. <laughs> To the bar. Okay. <laughs> as, as I as I make my way to the flashing LED stage where the where the drag queens sing, I, <laughs> I don't know why I'm frightened. Uh, <laughs> Just putting that one spotlight on you while everyone gathers around in clusters and tech talks to you about H and M dresses. Yeah, no, exactly. That's it. <laughs> that is exactly it. 
Oh god! And you 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 know they're making the film, the musical film, right? The musical of your H and M dress? No, of Sunset Boulevard. (laughs) Well, they they're they're filming the musical. The film, yeah. Oh my god! Okay, so let I gotta be honest with you. I don't love the musical. What are your thoughts on it? I enjoy it. I don't necessarily like it for all of the songs. I like it for the story, and I like it for the set. Um, but we do have Glenn Close playing Norma Desmond in the film. Oh my God. So, I mean, I think it's going to be, it's going to be amazing seeing that all in full Technicolor to photograph the red swollen tongues. Um, and I think Glenn Close is so good as Norma Desmond. She that. really is the perfect person for that role, isn't she? Uh, yeah. And then this, I mean, this this, this book that I keep referring to that I've got the, the order of is they talk about how Faye Dunaway um, was going to play Norma after Glenn. And basically, like, no one can live up to Glenn Close doing it, no matter how good someone is. Because though Glenn isn't the strongest singer, um... I mean, the Faye Dunaway one didn't happen. I think they cancelled it before because they just sold no mm-hmm. tickets. Um, oh, and God. she pulled out and there was a big lawsuit with her and Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, all of that. But uh, no one... Glenn Close is kind of lauded as the best Norma Desmond because she's yeah not, not the greatest singer, but she embodies the character the most. Everyone else is too too grand, but not in the right way. You don't. Yeah. They don't have that kind of vulnerable. I mean, Patty Lapone has played her, but Patty Lapone is too, too big and too competent. There needs to be still with the power a slight incompetence to Norma because she's not, she's not anything anymore. You know what I mean? She's she still needs to be that faded. I mean, Glenn Close is anything but a faded star, but Patty Lapone is holds herself to big and too seriously and her singing's too good but she's not as good as an actor yes and, and also there's something about Patty Patty Lapone is not an underdog like she's someone who has been uh her her star has never faded for however long she's been on the stage she's always been like that bitch but there's something about Glenn oh, yeah. Close even though she's this huge movie star there's always been the sort of narrative around her kind of not getting the awards that she should and her not getting the roles that she should and people who love Glenn Close really do have this sort of like Glenn Close was robbed robbed queen narrative around Glenn oh, Close yeah. and that it makes her so kind of um I don't know so interesting in that role because you feel like she can sort of summon that sense of being slightly ignored and not being like like the most classically beautiful actress of her generation and being sort of sidelined that it makes sense. While also like time and time again proving what a talent she is. Yes. So what what is it with you and Glenn Close? I don't, she just always seems to play characters that I love. Do you know what I mean? She's, I mean, she was Cruella DeVille for Christ's sake, you know? The only Cruella, as far as I'm concerned. The fact that Emma, <laughs> Emma Stone is dusting those boots is absolutely a nightmare to me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, she just seems to play people that are just the most fascinating, deep, layered characters. I mean, um, Alex in Fatal Attraction is just... It, uh, the. I mean, she should have got the Oscar for that one. Um, and then obviously Dangerous Liaisons as well with with the the best emotional breakdown scene in a film i feel like you're gonna do it for us now are you oh i I can't it's just screaming isn't it she just smashes things (laughs) um it's just she's and she always does the thing where she like shakes her head when she's furious she's got a technique for being furious and she always plays furious people um it's just i don't know the characters she plays i love them and i've met her and she's really nice as well uh, and also there's a, a, a similarity in our faces. Um, not just me in drag, but out of drag as well. We've got very similar features. And I met her and she said the same thing. <laughs> oh, I love that. And I love also that now that um, she's filming Sunset Boulevard, the musical, that the the job opportunities that are just going like, to fly open for you now. <laughs> I, do you know what? I would be a liar if I said that I didn't have that in my mind 
Um, because I was like, I know it's going to happen. That's going to come out, and I cannot wait to be tagged in absolutely everything. I hope. I really hope that you get to do a sort of like a like sell out a, a little stage show of it kind of thing, like something you can do in like the glory, you know, like a like a night of Sunset Boulevard <laughs> that I will definitely come to. Night at night of a thousand normas. Oh my God. No, and the thing is, everyone would love it because it's a really easy costume to do. Just find a turban and a feather and you're laughing. <laughs> I oh, mean, you have to do this, Joe. <laughs> night of a thousand normas. And I, so, I, I mean, the, the goal is to get invited to the red carpet, I think. Yes, I feel like because they often like hire drag queens to do um, premieres, don't they? In character, so sometimes, sometimes <laughs> they did it for Maleficent. I know that. So we need to talk about the denouement of this film, which is probably one of the most famous closing scenes of any movie. Can you can you talk us through it? Well, Joe is dead. The police have been called. The press have attended. Norma Desmond is uh, gone completely fucking mad. And she now thinks that she's preparing to film a scene for Salome. And she's getting herself ready and the house is filled with press and, and, and film crews and the police, reporters, just everyone. And she... You know, they ask her, you know, Max says to her, you know, come downstairs, madame, the cameras are ready. And in order to lure her down, Max pretends to be directing her. As she walks down the stairs to this swelling music, dressed as Salome. And as she gets to the bottom and she says, I can't go on with the scene, I'm too happy. I can't say, I, I say how happy I am to be back in the studio making another picture. And after this one, after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture and another picture. And it's just, she just, when you, when you explain it and you go, the woman is being arrested, but she thinks she's filming a scene. It's, it, uh, again, I'm, I'm just... It's been a long week and I wish I could remember it word for word for word. But the most famous thing, and for, I think for some reason, it's often attributed to Marilyn Monroe for some reason. Because if you say to people, you know, the line, you know, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Some people go, oh, that was Marilyn Monroe, wasn't it? I was like, no, no, it was wow. not. Wow. Wow. God. I don't know why people think that. It's because it, it feels like I think people hear it as, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. And it's saucy. Yes. But it's not. It's a moment of pure madness. You're so right. I, I haven't heard the Marilyn Monroe thing, but definitely that line has been recontextualized as being this sort of like happy birthday, Mr. President, kind of saucy, little, oh, I'm ready for my It's It's, yeah, it's rarely contextualized as this moment of pure madness. It, yeah, and it's uh, and then she's, she's just, you know, I'm ready for my close-up, and it fades... And that's the end of the film. But you know, that is, that's the most famous line of the movie, undoubtedly. But for me, the, mo- the, the part that gives me real shudders is the line that comes directly before that, which is, you know, you know, this is my life. It always has been. And she's, you know, talking and she goes, and you, you wonderful people out there in the dark. And she sort of reaches to the camera and it's so frightening, but it's also this moment of like, this is in a movie that's completely about how fame destroys people, how it gives them these crazy expectations of what their life should be, of who they are. It gives, it completely inflates and then destroys the sense of self. And we blame the studios and we blame the machine, but also we as the audience are complicit in in this fame monster that continues to ruin people's lives, you know? And, 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 and when she, she looks us dead in the eye. She, we are referenced. We are referenced. We're part of it. We're part of the whole thing. And maybe that's part of why, you know, when, when you know, big movie people saw this movie and they were so angry, they, that was the thing that made them uncomfortable, that, that, that it wasn't just them being blamed, but the, the entire audience that they had fostered and grown, you know? 
and all in 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 one 30 second moment it just it wraps it all up and says you know it says that you know it's 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 that last little horrifying like wink I, I think we both read this article that was on The Guardian recently for the 70th anniversary of this movie. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it was obviously the way every culture article is now written in the context of after the pandemic, aren't we all feeling a bit something, something? But uh, this one was saying that, you know, we, we, we're kind of all Norma Desmonds now because we're all these sort of shut-ins who um, rely on a diet of false information that we use to inflate our own senses of self. We're all, we'll all of it, if we're not Norma Desmond now, we'll all be Norma Desmond eventually. I just, I don't understand how everyone in the world has not seen this film. I think it should be required viewing. I think it should be required viewing for anyone in entertainment. I agree. Um, uh, You know, for my own selfish reasons. Um, of just that, I, I it's just... And no matter how many times I've seen it, every time I go, oh, it is good, isn't it? I love showing it to people. I, I feel like every every new dear friend I make has to watch it with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got it on... Um, I mean, I've got it on DVD. And then I bought it on Amazon Prime as well. so that And I have it downloaded to my iPad. So that whenever I want, I can just pop it on no matter where I am. I was like, I'm, this film is always for me. It's always for me. It's so, I think that the people who, who like it, they really obsess over it. It's such an obsessible film because it's so quotable and because every scene has something mental going on in it, whether like visually or even the music that underscores it is so ghoulish all the time. And this thing as well of, I, 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 um, I have Gloria Swanson's memoir or something here, somewhere around here. The Swanson on Swanson. Swanson on Swanson. It's huge. Do you have it? Yeah, I've got it. It's lovely red, red and gold book. It's so, it's the biggest book I own, I think. It's the biggest memoir I own. It's like 900 pages long. She does not skimp on detail. But she does talk about um, the immediate aftermath of making this movie where, and her and Betty Davis were the favourites for uh, the 1951 Oscars. And Billy Davis was up for All About Eve, which is, you know, coincidentally, this other movie that's so much about women and aging in Hollywood and what fame does to a person's mind. So clearly there was something going on in the culture that was really reflecting on this. And uh, she ended up losing to Judy Holiday. And, you know, Gloria Swanson's version of events is very much like, look, you know, I've, I've been nominated before. I've lost before. I didn't expect to win. I felt fine. You know, I, had a, I brought my mum with me to the Oscars. We had a nice night. But then she talks about how everybody who approached her expected her to freak out and expected her to completely just, you know, be like in the last 15 seconds of that movie. And then she, she realized in that moment, she was like, oh, I've created something that's going to follow me around forever. They really do mm-hmm. think I am this person. There's a lovely, just in terms of that, that Oscars, there's a, uh, have you seen Feud? I have, yeah. There's a, a lovely moment when Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are having an argument. Um, and then I think um, Betty Davis says something like, you know, uh, Judy Holiday shouldn't have won the Oscar. That was my year. And they're having the, the argument. And as Joan Crawford is about to slam a door and she says, um, uh, something like, and it was a Gloria fucking Swanson who should have won the Oscar, you bitch! And then slams the door. Um, it's like she's like basically the last thing before she slams the door is saying, Gloria Swanson should have won, not you. <laughs> and I agree. <laughs> I mean, all about Eve is lovely, but you know, Sunset Boulevard holds up better for me. Yeah, All About Eve is lovely and the writing is so good, but like, it's just, it's kind of like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a relationship movie and it's, it's not like Betty Davis's camp, but the movie isn't camp, you know, but the, the, I, I just don't know another film that masters the gothic so well and gothic is such a Victorian trope, but then they, it melded on to this 
very contemporaneous issue of movie stars and Hollywood and what do we do with the aging idols. It's just, there's nothing that looks or feels the same as Sunset Boulevard. No, I mean, and I think that was down to sort of Billy Wilder's kind of Weimar um, background. You know, it was, it was, it would, it was. Yeah, yeah, like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or something. Well, I think they didn't, I think they they, they put magnesium in the air um, when shooting it so that everything had that kind of dirty look. Everything was dirty, like nothing was clean. I think they they put dust on things. There was magnesium in the air. It 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 it, it was meant to look like an old. It was meant to be filmed like those things as well. Just it has sound. Every time I watch it, like I, I we're, uh, you live in Brighton, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm in London, but I I feel so lucky that there are so many. Um, I mean, I say so many, maybe one a month silent movie nights that you can go to in London and you can see these things the way they were meant to be seen. And you do get to see that sort of grimy, graininess of silent movie that's still so charming. And you have that sense when you're watching a silent movie as well, because because there isn't dialogue, everybody reacts to the same things at the same time. There's that everyone reacts to the big physical gags and the little facial expressions. And it really, it captures the room in a way that movies with dialogue just don't. Have you ever found that? I mean, I ha- I'm, the only silent movies I've seen in, in groups of people, um, rather than at home, was I saw Nosferatu with a harpist. Um, and that was incredible because you, you see people jumping to the yeah. to like moments with the with the harpist. It was it was yeah it was actually yeah no you're right very reactionary. But Nosferatu was definitely like you get big reactions from the audience because the the harpist was like directly. I don't know. I felt like we were being conducted. Yes, that's exactly how it feels like that you are being conducted. And like you, you kind of forget as well that because um, like so most silent movies, unless they've been preserved and collected by archives or private collectors, they're lost to time or because the celluloid was so highly flammable, they've, a lot of them have just perished in fires. And there's so many people whose careers that we just don't get to see anymore. And um, mm-hmm. so when you, when you get a chance to see a restored picture that also somebody, and generally whoever is, uh, accompanying it musically has had to write that score again so it's like this incredible creative process that happens when people show silent movies it, i find it so fascinating I do, do you know what hopefully when sun, the new sunset boulevard film comes out that there becomes sunset boulevard viewing parties do you know what? i'm gonna do you know what i'm gonna contact i'd say i'm gonna make, make this statement now the duke of york cinema in brighton which i think is britain's oldest cinema right Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I saw Nosferatu, Duke of York Picture House. Um, I'm going to contact them and I'm going to say, "Hey, you, let's do Sunset Boulevard, and I'll host it." Oh, that would be so good! I would so make the journey from London for that. Um, you know what? Yeah, I've decided that's my next. That's my next project. Um, okay, Joe, we're probably running out of time. I've kept you over time, actually. Uh, is there anything you'd like to promote at the moment? That um, any shows that people want to see or anything like that? Oh. I'm touring the UK in September uh, for my show Deco Punk, um, and all the dates from MrJoeBlack.com. That's M-I-S-T-E-R, not M-R. Um, MrJoeBlack.com. Yeah, but just general on my socials, which are all Mr. Joe Black. Um, yeah, but yeah, hopefully see people on tour in September. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on today, Joe. This has been really oh, my, fun. My absolute pleasure. This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me about the podcast at sentimentalpod at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thank you to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the artwork, and Hannah Varro for the mixing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 